it was like a scene from a Tarkovsky movie where you have these buses, buses on fire, buses that have been used as, as a barricade had been somehow ignited in that, in that exchange. So these buses on fire and in the middle of it, it was this huge black dog. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. As a 24-year-old, Kieran Williams was in Moscow staying with friends when the 1991 Moscow coup occurred. He's a professor at Drake University in the United States and previously he taught for nine years at University College London's School of Slavonic and East European Studies where he was an associate professor in politics as well as a frequent consultant for the UK Foreign Office. He is a specialist in the politics of Central and Eastern Europe and has authored or co-authored four books in including a prize-winning account of the 1968 events in Czechoslovakia and a biography of the writer-statesman Václav Havel. Now, as I'm sure you know, some of our fans are helping the podcast financially, so if you'd like to join this select band, then sign up to Patreon. For the price of a couple of coffees a month, you can help to cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air. Plus, you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. That's coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Now, back to today's episode. Kieran gives a rich eyewitness account of those edgy days with vivid descriptions of what he saw and felt during that period. I'm delighted to welcome Kieran Williams to Cold War Conversations. Why were you in Moscow in August 91? I was... 24 years old. Uh, I was just getting into my doctoral work, uh, which was actually on 1968 in Czechoslovakia, uh, the Prague Spring, which you've had several episodes about. And I was hoping to go to Moscow and track down Russian journalists uh, who were either writing about the Prague Spring uh, retroactively or had been sent to Czechoslovakia in 1968 to cover the invasion for the Soviet press and write stories that were in support of the invasion uh, at the time. So I was there and I was staying with uh, Russian friends um, who I'd gotten to know through family uh, contacts. Uh, My father was an atmospheric scientist and had been to the Soviet Union on conferences and through his Russian scientific contacts. I'd gotten to know some families who very kindly uh, put me up. And we'd actually, with these Russian friends, we had actually been out in the countryside for about 10 days kayaking. Um, There's a sort of Russian tradition of of, uh, this thing called a baidarka, uh, which is kind of like a kayak. And we'd spent 10 days out in the countryside on, on a river uh, which was in itself an amazing experience because you could see the Soviet economy breaking down in front of you, uh, going from village to village where cash was meaningless and everything was basically done on a barter system uh, and begging and pleading, but usually barter. Uh, 
So that in itself would have been an amazing experience. And then we came back to Moscow, I believe on August 15th. Um, and there was something very much in the air. Uh, there was this definite feeling of something impending, but there had been that feeling for the better part of a year uh, in, in Moscow, in particular, the constant rumor mill of uh, possibility of a coup or something. Um, so that's why I was there, um, just by pure, pure accident that I timed my visit uh, for that particular part of the summer. Right. And was it unusual for Westerners to be able to stay with Soviet citizens privately like that? It was becoming, I think, less unusual, but it was still not easy bureaucratically uh, in terms of the visa process. Um, and in fact, my original plan had been to go earlier in the summer and leave earlier. But the Soviet embassy in London was being so slow about processing my visa request. Um, and I think also at the Soviet end, they were being slow, which meant that I had to reschedule the trip which was then very fortunate because it meant that I would be, as it turned out, I was there for the days of the coup. Um, I had originally planned to be there, I think more in the beginning of August. So I would have missed it. So thanks to that, that bureaucracy and red tape, um, I was, I was able to witness that event, but it was, it, it, I think it was more of a problem for the, the Russian side for, to be a host um, entailed a lot of, going to various offices, standing in lines. When you, the foreigner, arrived, you had to go and report to the local uh, visa office to let them know you were in the country and what address you were staying at. Um, and you had to have a visa that specified very clearly which, which places you were planning to go to outside of Moscow. Uh, so, for example, for our kayak trip, we had to specify in the visa what would be our starting point and our, our end point. Uh, all that had to be approved in advance as part of the visa process. Um, you returned to Moscow about four days before the, the coup. How, mm -hmm. how did you first hear? Very clearly in the morning, the morning of Monday, the 19th, the, the friends I was staying with uh, woke me up because they, they were already up and heard it on the radio. They'd switched on the radio and it was just broadcasting the declaration, the, the statement of the, the coup committee um, announcing that Gorbachev was allegedly ill and indisposed and uh, unable to perform his office. And therefore, the state committee for the emergency situation was was taking power in his place. And so that was just what was on, on the radio. Um, so then my friends woke me up and uh, my first my first impulse was to try to call the British embassy and get advice uh, on whether I should stay or leave or try to get out. But the phone lines were, especially to the, to the embassies, uh, were being interfered with, and I, I couldn't get a clear um, connection to the embassy. So at that point, we just went into the city center. Uh, we just got on public transportation, which was running normally. Uh, the coup committee wanted people to go about their business as if it was just a regular Monday. They did not want people to in any way depart from their routine. So they left public transportation running, uh, the Metro and the buses and everything. So it was very easy to get into the center of Moscow, um, and, and start to see what was happening and where people were congregating. Right. And what, what did you first see that gave you, uh, an idea that, you know, it, it wasn't going to be just a normal day in Moscow. 
Uh, it took a while, actually, for quite quite a lot. The, the initial part of the journey, there was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. Um, you would not have guessed what had happened if you were, if you hadn't put on the radio and heard the news. You'd have no idea. Uh, the people on the street and in the metro and and the buses were acting like they would, um, which meant kind of downtrodden. Uh, everyone everyone by that point uh, was exhausted um, because of the way which. Peter Stroika had had been playing out. Um, they were living with the worst the worst of socialism and the worst of capitalism in many ways. So people were just generally getting through daily life was 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 very difficult just to get your essentials taken care of. And people were, I think, preoccupied by that. They were preoccupied by just getting their groceries and and getting to work. So it was only when we got to if you look at my post, uh, those first pictures that I put up, uh, the streets called Petrovka, um, getting fairly close to the center at that point. And um, that's a fairly main street that runs north-south uh, towards towards Red Square eventually. And that's when we first saw tanks. That's a column of tanks. I think they were T-80s coming down from the north towards towards probably Red Square or at least somewhere in the center. Um, and that was the first sign of, of that of mobilization, right? And and how did people react to the sight of tanks? Very passively, I have to say. Uh, I, there was very little in the way of defiance or anger. Um, and I have to say, it is if you, if you've ever seen a column of tanks roll by, it is it's it, you feel it in your guts. You know, it, it's it is a, a very large heavy vehicle and you feel it rumbling in your bowels and for some people i think that can be very intimidating uh other people especially younger people i think would find that in you know infuriating and it would inspire you to do reckless things like try to stand in front of them but most people they were watching but it was more out of curiosity maybe or puzzlement uh or just passivity but um I saw very, very little in the way of, at least at that first encounter, very little in the way of any kind of defiance or anger. Uh, again, I said it was a more reaction from from exhaustion, I think. Yeah. So did you get the impression that some people hadn't heard the announcements on the radio and really didn't know what was going on at that time? That's a good question. I don't know. I, I didn't register any surprise uh, once we got to that point, uh, it, it didn't seem like people were were taken aback um, when they actually saw this this column of tanks coming coming down the road. Um, it did seem to be uh, that that's what they were expecting. Not necessarily on that not necessarily on that street. I think it was more just they didn't know that's where they would be approaching from. But I think there was obviously no uh, surprise that that it was happening. Yeah. Yeah. And were you scared at that point? No, uh, I felt, I think as a foreigner, I felt a certain safe distance from events, uh, which was probably a, a function of being, tw you know, in your 20s. And, yeah. And, and, <laughs> having fearless. <this laughs> fearless, you know, reckless, stupid, uh, you know, totally different attitude to, to risk. Um but I think probably it was mainly being a foreigner. I just somehow felt that I could get very close to all this, but I was somehow immune from from anything. So uh, I felt very angry myself. My my reaction was was anger. I thought this was this was outrageous. Um, 
so I think that was that was my main reaction was was anger rather than and alarm and concern about where this was going to take things globally. When you think about how the previous years that had been that huge sigh of relief that we'd step back from confrontation globally. Uh, you've had people on, I think, talking about 1983 and Abel Archer and that whole period, uh, you know, which I, which was very formative for me as a, as a teenager, you know, that, that period around 83, 84 really marked me uh, very, very strongly. Someone who was convinced that that would be nuclear war in, in the near future. So by the time you get to the end of the 80s and there's a sense that, oh, we got through that and it's going to be okay now. So in addition to the anger, there was that anxiety about where are we going to go in, in a planetary sense? Are we going to go back to th where things were, um, you know, at, in, at the end of the Brezhnev era? And did you see, I mean, you said that you, you felt angry. Did you see any anger from any of the civilians at this point? When we then moved farther into the center and got to what's called Manege, which is kind of a square near Red Square, before you get to Red Square, there's another open space. That's when we saw the first crowds. Those are the first gatherings um, of a few thousand people. And, but in a very dispersed, milling about kind of way, there was no focus. There was no center to it. Um, it was It was very spontaneous. It was more that people sensed, I think because gatherings had been held there in the recent past, people thought, well, that's where we go to start. And there had been um, some attempt to commandeer buses and trolleys to make them into barricades and, 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 and try to create a kind of cordon around this area. But it was at this point still, I think, very, very... Um, tentative uh, and people weren't entirely sure if they were in the right place that's where you started to see the first sort of angry people um but also i think a lot of people were just there out of curiosity um there were police around but they weren't doing anything they were just observing um i actually tried to talk to one police officer to get a sense of what his orders were uh what is what is what were his reasons for being there and what was he expected to do and he just politely told me to move on and didn't want to have a conversation. And then... Uh, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Someone began to uh, go around with a loudspeaker uh, and a megaphone, um, on a portable one on sort of strapped to his back. And he was in effect letting everyone know that Boris Yeltsin um, had uh, escaped arrest, had avoided arrest um, and had denounced the coup um, because there was a lot of uncertainty at first about who was on board. 
uh, the coup committee tried to make itself seem like it, it almost that it had Gorbachev's uh, blessing or that it had the approval of the political elite as a whole. So we were still trying to figure out, well, who was actually on board with the coup and who's against it. And it was only at that point about midday or early afternoon that it was clear that Yeltsin was at large and safe and against the coup. Right. Right. And what what about the soldiers? What were they doing there? I mean, with the, with the barricades, they, that was preventing them moving around? Uh, it Once we started to move towards the, what's called the White House, which was the seat of the Russian Republic government, um, that's when we started to see the first parked tanks and parked armored personnel carriers, which were not trying to go anywhere. And to some extent, the, yeah, their, their, their advance had been prevented by, by improvised barricades. And, and obviously, the Yeltsin's people had, had been anticipating this. And then, so they very quickly knew how to uh, position the barricades to try to seal off approaches to the, to the Russian government building where Yeltsin was going to be. And they were then able to, and I think some of this had also been prepared in advance, were able to get some of those tanks to defect uh, in effect, join the defense of the of Yeltsin and the Russian government. So some of them were already had already crossed over in their loyalty uh, to Yeltsin. Others perhaps hadn't done that, but they were not trying to go any farther, at least not in daylight. Um, so I think there was a lot of uncertainty on their part about what their what their orders were. I think they were told just to go and deploy themselves as a show of force. They had not been ordered to go and actually do anything beyond that, just position themselves. Yeah, yeah. And were people trying to talk to the soldiers to get them yes. to come on their side? Absolutely. That was what was amazing for me as as I'd read about the reaction to the invasion in Czechoslovakia in 68 and how people did that. People would... You know, because so many Czechs and Slovaks had been required to learn Russian in school, they could then use that Russian to try to engage uh, these incoming soldiers in dialogue. And then I saw exactly the same thing happening in, except this time in Moscow. But it was it was very similar, um, and it was very effective use of Russian grandmothers. You know, the the babushki, uh, because you cannot, you know. Uh, in, challenge uh, a Russian grandmother. And so th these grandmothers would be, you know, rebuking these young men, uh, many of whom were, were younger than me. Um, they were conscripts, a lot of them. And so these, they're basically, their grandmothers were telling them off and, and, and telling them, why are you here? What, what, why have you come here? This was not necessary. Uh, you're not going to shoot us, are you? You wouldn't shoot us. And it was very effective, I think, at, um, demoralizing and confusing a lot of these uh these soldiers um who really had no comeback they didn't really have any way to respond um they were just for the most part sitting there and taking it and eventually that's why some uh yielded to that pressure and and defected yeah yeah so um some of some of them probably presumably the rank and file didn't even know why why they were there then Exactly. As was the case in 1968, when many were, they didn't know they were in Czechoslovakia. They didn't know what country they were being sent to. And they had absolutely no idea why they thought they were going to West Germany or to stop a West German invasion or a NATO invasion. 
And it was very similar in, in 91 that these, these young men had been dispatched um, with very vague, um, if any, explanation as to, as to why, which very quickly then led to that, that breakdown of morale and, and the chain of command. Yeah, uh, which I think had been yeah. which had been building uh, for for years. I mean, the Soviet army by by ninety one had been so hollowed out by the ordeal of Afghanistan um, and and the whole problem within the Soviet army. Uh, the you may have had people talk about this before. This you, most men would have to do two years of military service or three in the navy, and it was an absolute nightmare. You know, it was just you know your first year, you're basically just a slave who's constantly being hazed by the older soldiers um, and uh, malnourished and, and, and just generally miserable. So that you take that generally horrible, horrific existence of, of conscription and add to it then the, the general breaking down of, of, the, of Soviet institutions um, by 91. It's not surprising that orders were given that were then quickly disobeyed. Yeah. Yeah. So the the nineteenth of August was was day one. How long did you stay out for observing these activities? We stayed, if I recall, we stayed till about sundown, and then one of the friends uh, I was staying with it was it was basically not he was ill, so uh, he needed to get back to to his apartment. Where so what we found was first of all that just recently the Soviet television had begun to relay CNN. Uh, they would re- worked out a, a sort of relay agreement with CNN so that CNN would, could be received at least in Moscow. So we went back to the apartment and switch on the television and without any trouble at all, we could get CNN giving their account of events. Um, and even on that evening's Soviet news broadcast, the state news broadcast, a journalist, uh, I think his name was Sergei Medvedev, was able to smuggle in a very short segment about Yeltsin and the the resistance to the coup that was forming around the White House. So even he was able to smuggle that into the evening news to let people know that the coup was not successful. It was not over yet. There was there was this very strong uh, place of resistance. Um, so we went back uh, on the Tuesday morning. Um, I think there was a curfew as well yeah, that was supposed to be in effect overnight. So, but in the morning um, we went back and that's when there was a gathering of about a hundred thousand people around the white house um, on the, uh, the back balcony um, where they brought out um, a whole sequence of very inspiring speakers, especially Andre Sakharov's widow, uh, Elena Bonner Um and the cellist uh, Rostropovich um, and a whole slew of other people uh, were there to, to show their solidarity and to, to inspire the crowd. Um, and it was a very effective way of drawing people uh, down there. And that's when we just stayed. We didn't go, we didn't leave at that point. We said, okay, we, this is, this is not over yet. We'll, we'll stay here and camp out uh, until this is yeah. over. Um so um, with the, the speakers, obviously, there's this, this is the the day that um, Yeltsin famously clambers on the tank. That was on the Monday. He did that on the right. Monday. I think. Okay, and then he went. Then he went inside into the White House, and he didn't come back out. I think very much until the coup was over because they were afraid of snipers. Right. 
Um, so they, they basically kept him indoors after that first public appearance on Monday. Right, right. So basically the the 20th was sort of lots of uh, famous personalities making speeches supporting Yeltsin. Uh, yeah, to give a sense that there was, uh, again, the, give you a sense of who's for and against um, and, and to give people a reason to stay there. Uh, this, they're working out something that I think was perfected later, like with the Maidan in Ukraine uh, in 2004, that if you want to use human civilians as a kind of shield, um, you have to give them a good reason to stick around so they don't get bored and wander off. So there was an attempt to put on, you know, not just have speeches mm -hmm. for inspiration, but then have music and entertainment. Um, there were some Soviet rock bands um, around. Um, and uh, that was, it was mainly just so that people, and there was a, so, some attempt to have food uh, for people, like pe people were going around with, with some food so that you didn't have to worry about going, trying to leave and go find food somewhere else. It was still very, very improvised, and it's been perfected elsewhere in, in other situations. But the the germ of that idea is there that you try to get thousands of people to come out and create a human shield. And also you use entertainment and humor uh, to try to defuse the situation, bring the tension down, uh, reduce the possibility of, a, of accidental escalation. Um, there wasn't too much attempt to control alcohol, but, but, you know, I admit we, we did have, uh, there was a bit of good Georgian red wine going around and Armenian cognac, uh, to, to, if you had any jitters that, that helped take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how, how long did you stay there that day? Basically through all of Tuesday through Tuesday night, I think the curfew began at 11, uh, so in theory, after 11, you were not supposed to be out, but about, uh, I am, I'm terrible at head counts, but I'm thinking 10,000 people maybe stuck around through that night, uh, which was not very nice. Even though it was August, it was kind of damp and cold, uh, and drizzly. Uh, but that was the, that was the decisive night, uh, because that is when the coup committee gave orders to, uh, to have elite forces go in and, if necessary, just clear a path, get into the White House, get past the armed guards who were inside and get to Yeltsin and, and take care of him in some way. Yeah. So those yeah. orders, those orders were given um, during that night of Tuesday into the Wednesday, but they were disobeyed. They just could not find any commander who was willing to carry out those orders, including some very tough, hard, veterans who'd seen action in Afghanistan. Um, they just said, we're not going to do this to civilians. Right, right. But they did make a move with some elite forces. I think they were moving through an underpass and some civilians got killed early in the morning That's, of that day. That is right. We heard that. We could hear that from where we were. Uh, we could hear gunshots in the distance. We thought, uh oh, this is, this is, it's kicking off right now. This is the real thing. And that was more of an accident. I think that was that was um, either a tank or an armored personnel carrier was just trying to move. It was on a ring road, um, and it was just actually, I think it was actually trying to get away from the center. It was not trying to get into the center. 
but its movements were misinterpreted by by the crowd in that area and they were trying to prevent it from from advancing and the crew inside panicked and opened fire and they killed three young men but i think it was not an attempt to carry out the orders to crush the um breakthrough to the white house it was more i think more accidental than anything um and again when this is what happens when you put probably young men or conscripts without actual experience in the field um, and put them in that situation and they reacted badly. I may be wrong about that. Maybe historians can correct that, but that was my understanding of it. Yeah. Here's a short piece of audio recorded by Kieran on the streets of Moscow during the 1991 coup. There's a link to the full audio in the show notes, so wait till the end and I'll give you details of that. Still waiting. Sounds like gunfire, something rattling. Must be about midnight now. Everyone's coming down as one barricade. Just down to our left, right near the Comic-Con building. Everyone's piling up now on top of the barricade. Sounds like gunfire rattling. Barricade overlooking Kalinin. Human, human line about five people deep across Kalinin Prospect. People are heading up towards the direction of Arbat. Something's coming from up at Kalinin. Maybe they're trying to break through the barricades higher up on Kalinin. Two columns of people now forming across right in front of us. I think a line in front. I'm interested because, you know, obviously you you were there and could hear this gunfire in in the distance. Mm-hmm. Did you? And we did we did walk towards it. <laughs> once once we realized they were not coming to us, mm. we walked in that direction. It wasn't very far, and by the time we got there, there was this bizarre. It was like a scene from a Tarkovsky movie where you have these buses buses on fire buses that have been used as, as a barricade had been somehow ignited in that in that exchange so these buses on fire and in the middle of it, it was this huge black dog i just remember vividly there was this enormous black dog just standing in the middle of all this and uh, i thought this is way too symbolic um and at this point some uh, I remember there's a, a Russian politician, Aliyah Rumyantsev, I think, uh, turned up and was basically doing crowd control uh, to try to keep things from getting any worse. So by the time we got there, the the actual f- shooting was uh, and 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 everything was over. So we were seeing the aftermath of that. Right, right. And what and did you you know did plans go through your head as to what you do if? You know, the the shooting had, had restarted and was more in your direction? That's a very good question because I I was with about a group of about six or seven Russians. And, uh, you know, I was determined to, to stay with them through the whole thing. And they said, don't be stupid. Right over there is the American embassy. It, and the American embassy is across the street from where all this was happening. They just moved from the older embassy building to a new embassy. Um, I think they were actually still in the process of kind of moving between the two, but there was a new American embassy practically on the doorstep of the the Russian government's, the White House. 
Right. And my Russian friends said, you know, my Russian friends, I'm a dual citizen, so I have British and, and American. And so my, Mar my Russian friends said, if things get bad, we're just going to shove you <laughs> towards the Marines uh, at, the, at the American embassy and, and, you know, don't be a hero. You're not, you don't have to stick around. They also made me wear this ridiculous yellow Macintosh so that I would stand out if, if we got separated in, in, a, in the melee, if there was a, you know, the crowd uh, broke up, they would be able to pick me out easily in the crowd um, and, sh again, shove me towards the embassy door. Right. Because you've got some, again, with your photos, there's some ones with the American embassy in the background. And there's a mm -hmm. great photo of you um, with a friend hold holding a flag, which I said to you earlier, mm -hmm. look reminiscent of Hungary in 1956. Yeah. And that was something that went through my mind a lot was 56. Um, as you may, you may know, there was, there was a sort of a first intervention in October of 56 by the Soviets. And then they tactically withdrew for a few days because it was going very badly. And so there was this initial sigh of relief in, in Hungary mm -hmm. that, oh, maybe the Soviets are, are withdrawing and are going to let us kind of take care of things on our own. And then the Soviets came back you know, this time much more decisively to, to well and truly get command of, of the situation. And I kept thinking, is that is something like that going to happen here where you think maybe the coup is going to relent or, or collapse and they'll withdraw, but then they'll come back with a second wave. Um, so there was this, this few hours and then the early part of Wednesday, the 21st, where it, after that incident had happened that you mentioned in the underpass and then nothing else happened after that, there was no, nothing else. I began to think, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this, they're really giving up. And for those few hours, I kept thinking, well, maybe they're just biding time. And there was a wild rumor suddenly around dawn on Wednesday, the 21st, that they were indeed coming for real. And everyone got into, uh, as we'd been directed, linked arms you know, created sort of parallel lines um, around the White House um, arm in arm. And then nothing happened, right? It just turned out to be a, a just a, a rumor um, that it got out of hand. So that's um, that, that hungry in 56 thought kept coming through my mind. In the end, it, it was a totally different situation. Yeah. And there must've been rumors all the time swirling around as to what was going on and what was going to happen. Yes. It was very, we, on the one hand, we had some pretty good, we were fairly well informed in it because we had CNN if we needed it. And that, that's a sign right away that the coup was not well prepared because they never seemed, I don't think they ever interrupted that transmission. We also, there were radio stations in Moscow, like Echo Moskvi, uh, which were very independent and they were never off the air. We could always get them on transistor radios. And they were doing their best to provide information. Right. So between between CNN and local radio stations, it really wasn't that hard to get a general sense of what was going on. But then on the street itself, yes, there would be these, these rumors would suddenly sweep through. Um, and those have a life of their own. Right. Right. And um, I think it was that day as well that Estonia and Latvia – uh, made independence declarations. Did you hear that through the the news at all? I don't remember hearing that. That's a good point. I don't 
we had very poor sense of what was happening outside Moscow um, in the rest of the Soviet Union. Uh, I think I think we knew there were solidarity rallies in what was then Leningrad. I don't recall hearing anything about the Baltic states, but I think we just would have assumed that they would obviously be against the coup, um, given the way things have been developing for a couple of years in the Baltic states. So we 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 had a pretty good sense of of how the outside world was reacting. Um, the American government, the British government, Europeans, we had, a, we had a sense that they were generally refusing to recognize the coup as a legitimate government, which was very helpful and very important. Um, we knew that, but we didn't know much else about within the Soviet Union. Right, right. And on on that day was sort of the day when the, the coup folded, or certainly the... Um, the military aspect of it folded. Yes. Yes. Um, there was a point during the night, I can't remember when, when someone, th- there was, we were told that there would be a flare system. Uh, I can't remember it was red for imminent attack or green for victory or all, all clear. But at someone, at some point, someone did start firing off flares uh, from the vicinity of the, the White House, and they were the all clear flare, uh, which we took to mean as a sign that somebody knew f- with pretty good authority that the coup had had collapsed. Um, that they must have had enough information they could give that with 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 confidence. And a bunch of us then took off just out of curiosity towards Red Square, uh, just to see what was going on down at that end, because because kind of think crudely of, of of Moscow on an axis. The Russian government's White House was at one end and then the Red Square at the other end. We were going back towards Red Square and there was nothing going on at that end. Um, and there were police around who just deflected us into the metro so that we would head back to the, to the White House. Um, so at that point, we felt uh, that was even before dawn on the 21st. We were fairly sure that the coup must have fallen apart somehow right right and obviously this was as, as you've you know quite vividly described this was at a time before mobile phones and instant communication did your parents try and get a hold of you <laughs> they did uh they apparently they did try calling uh to the apartment where i was staying and they could not get through um even when i was there they would not have been able to to get through the the phone lines were i don't know if the coup was able to make sure that 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 uh, phone lines were were international calls were being blocked or what, or whether it was just the system was overloaded and, and couldn't cope. Um, but no, my parents were not able to. So they they we did not speak until I got uh, I flew back to to England on the afternoon or late afternoon of the twenty first. So that was when when I spoke to them. Um, and uh, now, obviously, years later, as a parent, I'm just horrified that <laughs> that I put my parents through that. Yeah, uh, those you know, those three days of not knowing what was going on. Yeah. So you you had to leave your friends really before you you knew that the the coup had been unsuccessful. No, we we were fairly. We knew by that point that it was it was done. Uh, by the morning of the twenty first, we were confident that it was well and truly over. And so the challenge then actually more was getting to the airport, um, which you'd think, oh, that shouldn't be a, that'd be the least of your concerns. 
Um, but there was this, at that, at that point, there was already a lot of problems uh, with the road to the airport in Moscow being considered unsafe, uh, that it was already, you know, you were at risk of, you know, of highwaymen or, or people trying to rob you, pull you over and rob you on that road. I don't know if that was true or not, but there was this feeling that that road out to the airport is dangerous. Um, so the, the friend who was going to take me made sure that, uh, we, our car, the, the car we were driving, uh, had, had these, the Russian flag, you know, in the window. Um, and that, I think that's what you can see in that photo of me is we're holding these, the Russian trickler flags, they're the red, white, and blue flags, mm. um, which were the key symbolic moment of, of that, that whole episode was that's really when you see the identity shift from people thinking of themselves as Soviets to being Russian. Uh, that's really a, a, a very strong assertion of a distinct Russian identity uh, emerging and, and being the glue the, for, the, for the resistance is that we're rallying around a Russian government against a Soviet government. Yeah. And w was that and the, flag allowed to be displayed prior to then? It, it had been. It was not a, uh, not a, the official flag yet for for Russia, but it, you you could display it. It wasn't like in the Baltic states. I remember visiting Latvia in nineteen eighty eight, and people were daring for the first time to bring the old Latvian flag out instead of the Soviet Latvian flag. People were starting to show the the Lat the pre Soviet Latvian flag in public, but at, at considerable risk. By ninety one, yes, you could show these alternative flags in public. And, and I think it was, you could get away with it, but um, people were, were sort of pulling them out of the woodwork. You know, you, you, you they have these little hidey holes in their apartments and these tiny Russian apartments, they have these little crawl spaces and uh, everyone seemed to have one of these, these red, white, and blue flags ready to go. Um, and uh, so we used that as a, a kind of a pass system to make sure we got out to the airport without, uh, any, if there were going to be any checkpoints or anything, it, it turned out fine. It turned out absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it, it was, I had very mixed feelings, uh, about leaving at that point, but at least I did f leave feeling that I knew how the story was ending. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just wasn't sticking around for the, for the celebration. No, no. And what, what was the situation at the airport? Like, was that just straightforward and normal or not? Yeah, it was surprisingly normal. Um, I was flying back on British Airways and it was really no different from how, I mean, Soviet airports were always on the verge of chaos on a good day. <laughs> um, and so, but it was, it was, uh, there was nothing out of the ordinary. Um, they actually searched my bags very thoroughly on the way out. I, more thoroughly than I, than I was expecting. I thought, you know, that they wouldn't do that on the way out, but they, they were actually being very, uh, very old, you know, to the letter about checking your bags to see if you're not taking anything out of the country that you shouldn't. Right. Uh, but, but apart from that, it was, it was a fairly normal, normal process. Yeah. And presumably when you landed back in the UK, there was a pack of press meeting the flight wanting to <laughs> interview people or not? Not at all. No, really? Uh, yeah, no, there was really, uh, <laughs> No, not that I, if they were, they missed me. Uh, I missed them. Um, it was, it so was it got an exclusive then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there was, I mean, it was hard to top. I think it was Jonathan Steele. Uh, the guardian was, was, was on the plane with Gorbachev when he flew back 
from captivity. He was being brought back to Moscow. I think Jonathan Steele was on the plane with him. And, you know, so you can't compete with that. It, it was hard to, 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 I think, I think many people find this after they've been through something quite exhilarating and exciting and historic. You then find it very difficult to explain to people. Um, and I think it's hard for other people to know what questions to ask. So it, it was, um, you know, when people say, were you scared during it? I was like, well, I wasn't scared at all. But afterwards, there was this huge kind of come down, you know, big let down when the, when the adrenaline wears off. Um, and it's, uh, you almost have a slump of a sort, uh, and a big emotional crash afterwards. Um, because you, it's, 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 such a, it's such a rare thing. And it was, you're not, you're not likely to ever have another moment in your life where you're caught up in something like that. Well, I think you will agree that that was incredible to hear such a vivid first-hand account from someone who was at such a pivotal event of the Cold War. If you'd like to see Kieran's photos and his written account, then head over to our show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 81. This will also show us a link in some podcast apps and the show notes have some videos relating to this episode too. Don't forget, if you'd like to get that Cold War Conversations coaster, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash the word donate or click again on the link in your podcast app. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War conversation. And if you're a Twitter fan, do join us. We are at Cold War Pod. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.